Come on. Welcome to Money Savage, Savage Approach Personal Finance. This is George Grombacher, and the time is right. Welcome to today's guest, a strong and powerful Rob Stromberg. Rob, are you ready to do this? I am, George. Excellent. Let's do this. Rob is a CFP and the founder of Mountain River Financial. He's a frequent contributor to U.S. News and World Report, The Washington Post, CNN Business, and many more. I'm excited to have you on. Rob, tell us a little bit about your personal life, some more about your work, and why you do what you do. Sure, George. Yeah. So my personal life, I live with my wife, Tara, my son, Noah, and our dog, Autumn, in Abington, Pennsylvania, which is a little town about 35 minutes north of Philadelphia. I recently moved down here from northern Connecticut, where my wife and I used to work, so we get a little closer to family with our uh, young son. He's 17 months, so every additional pair of family hands is is very valuable. (laughs) For sure. Um, So... (laughs) The, the impetus for the move and says so nice to be closer to family down here. I um, <clears throat> started Mountain River Financial after seven years working, consulting with other independent financial advisors around the country, primarily in the Midwest, um, helping them improve their businesses, both from a process management standpoint, uh, but also the firm I work for, our, our core competency was money management. So also helping them retool their client investing experience and help them really develop and build out an investment philosophy that they could be a part of for their clients. So I had a, a great opportunity to see kind of behind the curtain on you know, dozens, probably a little over a hundred different independent financial advisor practices out there and uh, see some really great stuff going on. And unfortunately also see some less than great stuff going on. So I, uh, I realized after several years of doing that, that I wanted to be traveling a little less. Again, I was in Connecticut and was, basically living out of hotels throughout the week. So um, knew I really enjoyed working with clients, wanted to get a little bit more into the planning aspect of things. So um, left that position, got my CFP, and started Mountain River. It, really the core of it was, as far as the why, you know, money can be a, a, a great thing. It can be a source of tremendous freedom and opportunity, or it can be something that holds you back, something that causes an incredible amount of anxiety and stress and really overall discomfort in life. And I thought, man, this, uh, this financial freedom and this opportunity to help people build wealth is thrilling. And I want to get out there and help people take advantage of the former um, opportunity and freedom that it can afford and try to avoid that anxiety and that stress that, that money can, uh, can give you in life. So that was the, the crux of starting Mountain River Financial. I appreciate that very much. And I think we all know all too well that that for it seems like about half the population it it is in fact probably causing more stress than it is providing freedom. So I I, I guess maybe a, a good jumping off point might be I, I saw on your website that you're working to help people make wise and purposeful decisions with their money, and I I I like the use of those terms. Why did you choose wise and purposeful? Well, I think making a wise and purposeful decision with that money. Money at the end of the day is just a tool and we can either leverage that and and make the most of it, or we can let it kind of um, make the most of us or take advantage of us, I think here. So I use wise and purposeful because I think all too often we get into habits, we get into kind of ruts, if you will, of doing things the way we've done them, the way we've always done them. And we don't, we kind of lose sense of the opportunity cost, the opportunity cost, what else that money could be doing for you if you weren't, 
using it the way you're currently using it. And as a tool, I think it's really important to consistently think about, hey, how am I using and allocating this relatively finite resource of mine? Um, and how can I how can I tweak those decision makings with a very long term view? Because that's what I'm doing. I I don't focus on trying to, you know, give you juiced up returns in a given year or double your money in the next three years. I chose the word wise because I'm looking to build lifetime wealth for my clients and help them make very long-term strategic decisions. And I think being purposeful about that is the first step, you know, thinking critically about, okay, I have this resource. I have an opportunity to do anything with this resource. Um, Am I really making the most of this? Am I getting kind of the most utility out of this dollar that I'm allocating to X versus Y? Or is there a way that I could be a little more purposeful in trying to use this in a way that can really benefit me the most over the long run? And that was kind of the, um, the crux of going with those two particular words there. And as I thought critically about what I do and how I add value for clients, um, I thought that those two words summed it up pretty nicely. No, I, I, I like it a lot. And as you were explaining that, um, I think it's easy for all of us to, to lose sight or maybe to really never, maybe even never start to consider the opportunity costs of choices we make today how we spend $1 here versus if we were putting it towards some kind of a long-term goal. Um, and I don't know if we're necessarily all wired to be thinking that way. It just, do you think sometimes people just need a bit of a nudge or the light bulb needs to get turned on to these things? Well, yeah, I think so. I mean, look, a lot of listeners to this podcast, uh, probably you and I all are probably in this kind of subset of the population, which are kind of personal finance nerds. You know, we're into this. We like thinking about it. Um, I studied both finance and uh, economics in college. And it was because, you know, since a young age, I was really into the idea of, you know, letting money work for you. And I understood at a very early age that the stock market is where you went if you wanted to, to be wealthy and not have to be concerned about money. Um, and so that I think that mindset is something that was just kind of natural for me. But I think for a lot of the population, you're absolutely right. It's something that needs to be. I don't know if uh, they need to be educated on that's the right word, but I think it needs to be brought to their attention. And I think you need to highlight and illuminate some of the realities of life um, and some of the benefits of taking that more purposeful approach. You know, I hear so much about, I'd say, you know, three or four years ago, you'd hear the the Susie Ormans of the world say, hey, if you're spending $5 a day on a cup of coffee over the course of a year, that's this much. And, you know, if we take that amount of money and we put it into an account that can earn 7% per year over 30 years. This is how much that coffee habit is costing you. You know, and now more recently we see kind of the, the reversion back to the other side. And it's like, you know what, have your cup of coffee. You're not going to make yourself a millionaire by not spending $4 on a latte every day. And I think it's somewhere in the middle. You know, I think you need, if you want to make a tangible difference in your spending, uh, eliminating a coffee a day at Starbucks probably is not going to be the real game changer. It's probably going to be looking at those bigger ticket items. You're, your housing expenses, your travel, um, your transportation, some of those big ticket items that, you know, if you make some small adjustments there, that can have a much more tangible impact. But at the end of the day, $4 could be put towards something else. And if you're spending $4 a day, you're spending 20 bucks a week. And instead of doing that, you take that 20 bucks and you put it into an index fund and you get some tax benefits from that and let that money start working on your behalf. I think that it's just important when you're looking anytime you break your wallet out, anytime you open up the purse and grab that, you just think to yourself, 
is this spending, is this purchase, this allocation of my funds, is this giving me the most utility? And that's the word I like to think. Cause I think of utility as overall purpose and happiness, joy, um, contentment. And if that coffee does that to you, then yeah, get an extra large, super fancy frappuccino, <laughs> mocha latte, whatever it might be. Um, but if you think, you know what, I just like a little bit of caffeine in the morning. That's kind of like me. And maybe it's just convenient to do that. Well, maybe it's worth buying a big old can of Folgers and, uh, you know, preparing the coffee maker the night before running a pot in the morning and, you know, saving yourself two or three bucks a day and letting that money again, go towards something that uh, is going to be working on your behalf, uh, an advocate for your future success, if you will, um, as opposed to doing that. So I try to tell people, look, it's not about, you know, if you want to save money or budget, it's not about saying, Hey, don't want to spend money on this or do spend. It's about, again, being purposeful, thinking critically about each of these purchases and these expenditures and saying, Hey, is this bringing me joy? Or am I kind of just in the rut of doing this? Cause I've done it the last five years, 10 years, last week, whatever it is. And so I'm going to keep doing it today. And that's, that's how I look at that. That consideration is just once you can realize the power of taking that money and letting it work for you, I think that really frees you up to start thinking critically about those decisions and recognizing, well, you know, maybe it's worth bringing on a roommate if I'm a young 20 something just out of college instead of having my own apartment. Or maybe if I'm in a big city with good public transport, I, you know, maybe I don't need this car or I don't need a nicer car. Or maybe it's not buying coffee from Starbucks. I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's one or the other. I think it's about just having a mindset that looks at, money as a tool, the power of that tool when it's, you know, applied in the right area and then making your spending decisions once you've kind of gone through that mental, that mental math, if you will. Yeah, I love it. I think that that's great and wise and purposeful and, 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 and have that conversation with yourself and, and audit how it is that you're actually spending your money. So I think that that's excellent. So I think that, well, I guess, do, do you, do people need to already have a lot of money before they start doing financial planning before they get advice? Well, I guess it depends on what kind of advice that person is looking for. Um, you know, if you're looking for help managing money, (laughs) then you need to have money to be managed. And so in that case, perhaps, but I don't think you need, especially in today's environment with the way advice is changing, the way people are charging for advice and the increased accessibility to good quality advice. I don't think you need to wait to have money before you start doing the planning process. And that's true. Certainly whether you're, you're hiring a planner or doing it yourself, Um, everyone has to start somewhere. And the vast majority of us aren't fortunate enough to have, you know, dynastic family wealth that we're already sitting on um, before we've had an opportunity to go out in the world and and earn and make our mark and contribute and, and bring that income in. So, I mean, I think it's maybe a little cliche, but it's the time to start for everyone. If you don't want money to be this anxiety or this burden in life, that's, you know, a source of contention with your spouse or a source of uncertainty and fear for what if, you know, I lose my job tomorrow. I think everyone um, starting today, starting the moment you, you start considering this is crucial because, you know, I think time ultimately is the most valuable asset that most people have far more so than, than money. Um, I had a friend who used to say, you know, if I, uh, a, a past coworker would say, you know, if I could give you Warren Buffett's wealth, but you had to take his age with it, you know, would you take that deal? And almost no one says yes, unless they're already, you know, 85 years old. Right. So, yeah. I'll add a couple <laughs> extra years. So you can throw several billion under it as well. But most will say, no, of course not. Right. 
And so that time truly is your, your biggest asset. And to get that money working early, um, I think is extremely important. You know, compound interest as you know, they say Einstein's quoted as saying it's the eighth wonder of the world. I don't <laughs> anymore. I, I wonder about all these fantastic quotes that we hear thrown about. Um, but <laughs> the gist of that is very true. It's uh, it can be your best friend, certainly. And, you know, if you can get the ultimate combination of getting, um, building some money, having some money available and coupling that with time, you pair those together with a, a couple pretty simple approaches to letting that money work for you. And, and that compounding certainly does at least become the eighth wonder for, for you as the investor. So I definitely think that everyone should be starting right now thinking critically about this. Right. And, and again, as I mentioned earlier, there have been some big shifts in the advice and planning industry that also have enabled people who don't necessarily have money to still access really good quality fiduciary advice from a financial planner, a CFP, um, without having, you know, 500 grand in the bank or a quarter million dollars in the bank that needs actual managing. Um, There's been finally in a really stale outdated industry, there have been some shifts in how you can, as an advisor, charge or bill, uh, which make it, I think, much more accessible for kind of the everyday person. And um, and that's, for me, that's the, the biggest thing. Having consulted in the industry, I can attest to the fact that it's extremely stale. <laughs> it is extremely outdated. Our industry has a number of issues, but I think one of them is that it's been kind of stuck in a rut for several decades because, candidly, there's not a lot of incentive for most existing financial advisors out there to, to rock the boat. You know, it's been a very lucrative profession for a lot of people, especially those folks who are using the AUM, the asset under management model, where they typically charge 1%, somewhere around 1% of the actual money they manage. And in order to then, you know, have enough revenue per client, most of these firms who use the AUM model will require some degree of an, an account minimum where they say, hey, you need 200, 250, 500, a million bucks in order to work with our firm because that's how we charge is based on how much we manage and, you know, we have a revenue minimum to, you know, to working with a client. Um, and that has precluded a lot of people who really need advice, uh, people who are, you know, coming out of college, maybe coming out of med school, grad school, law school with a lot of debt. Um, they don't have that, you know, investment account outside of their, you know, maybe a small IRA or something along those lines don't have that big pile of money, but they desperately need advice in a major way. And so I think that the shift we're seeing uh, in the industry is really powerful and it it does enable you to not just go and self-educate, but go and hire someone and outsource it. And this isn't something that you want to be dedicating your free time to. Yeah, certainly technology has has, has made, I think, pretty sophisticated investment management available to just about anybody. So that's nothing but a positive thing. In terms of that, do you think that, that that everybody should take a little bit of time and determine what their investment philosophy is and or maybe just have a, a conversation about what is investment philosophy and, may, and, and should I have one? Uh, well, yeah. In an ideal world, yes, everyone should do that. I think those words, when they're strung next to each other for the, the average person in public, probably don't mean very much an investment philosophy. Like what is that even? Um, when I say investment philosophy, I mean a, a guiding set of beliefs or principles that dictate your investment decisions. Um, so for instance, at my firm at mountain river, I have one single investment philosophy that I apply with every client I work with. And I refuse to deviate from that investment philosophy. It's based on some pretty simple, in my opinion, some pretty simple, basic principles that seem pretty logical. Um, I subscribe to an, an, evidence-based investment philosophy, which just means that 
I'm not making investment decisions based on anything outside of the over almost 90 years now of good, clean academic research that's coming out of the Ivy League institutions, you know, these top educational institutions around our country and the world um, are putting out this fantastic body of research, or research that is peer reviewed. It's the kind of things that you build the textbooks off of and it's accessible to everyone. And for me, that means some basic things like controlling what you can control. So trying to manage your costs, controlling your risk, controlling your tax situation, and, and not trying to get out there and take the reins of this, you know, this return element of the investment experience. I think all too often we focus on how can I juice up my returns? How can I get that better return? And you start making decisions that are not paying attention to how much you're paying from an explicit or implicit uh, basis to do that. You're not looking at the tax consequences of these decisions and you're not really thinking necessarily about risk. That's probably the most important thing. You know, risk is a a tricky thing because sometimes you you don't feel it. You don't experience it until you do. And then it's too late and you go, Oh my gosh, I didn't know this would happen. I never heard of, uh, you know, X, Y, and Z things popping up and having this impact on my, what I thought was a great investment. You know, I have this five star funds that Morningstar ranked, and this manager was the manager of the decade. And so how could this guy possibly be, you know, doing wrong with my money? Um, so I think, yeah, maybe this is a long winded answer to your question, but I think everyone should have some guiding principles as far as what they're looking for or what they want to consider when taking that money that they've worked so hard to earn that they've set aside and saved. And now they want working on their behalf. I think there should be a degree of, of trying to educate yourself there. Now, with that being said, as I mentioned before, I, I don't think everyone in the world is a personal finance nerd. I don't think most folks love sitting up and reading personal finance articles, figuring out how they can best tax arbitrage or get the right <laughs> risk premiums in their portfolio. And that's understandable, right? And that's the reason why there are financial planners, financial advisors out there and this industry is thriving and such a valuable um, component to society because I don't expect everyone to have the same passion that I have. And I frankly think for most people, it's probably quite dull and onerous to get out there and try to get yourself up to a point where you're super comfortable that you have an investment philosophy, that you've made the right decisions or you have the right investment philosophy. Um, And that's why guys like me exist. (laughs) I like it. Well, Rob, Savage Nation is ready for your difference making tip. What do you have for them? Well, I think that uh, I've thought long and hard about this, George, and I hear a lot today about the HSA, and rightly so. HSA is the health savings account. That account is something that's offered if you have a high deductible health plan through your employer, and the health savings account has become kind of all the rage because it's this magical investment account that is um, currently the only what's referred to as triple tax-advantaged account. Uh, When I say triple tax-advantaged account, I just mean in this particular account, if you contribute money to an HSA, you can write that off your taxes. So you get the tax break up front, uh, much like a traditional IRA. That money is also sheltered as that money grows. So you can take that money and either put it in a bank account or send it over to an investment account and invest that money and let it work for you. If you do that, the money's gonna grow tax-free as long as it's in this HSA account. And then the really nice part about it is unlike a traditional IRA, if you take that money out and you use it for medical expenses, a qualified medical expense, um, it's tax-free when you take that out of the account too. So I've seen a lot of articles, a lot of pieces of people warming up to the HSA and recognizing, man, we're all going to have medical expenses in life. Uh, Fidelity just re- released a study that said that uh, in today's dollars, the average retired couple can expect 
$260,000 that they're going to spend on healthcare expenses through retirement. So we know this is something that we're all going to be paying for eventually. And if you do take that money out of the account uh, for those qualified medical expenses anywhere along the way, not just in retirement, um, it will come out tax-free as well. So you have this triple tax advantage. What I think most people don't know is there's actually a way to even juice that up even more. Um, if you have an HSA and it's offered through your employer, I encourage everyone, reach out to your HR department and ask if you can make your contributions through payroll. Because if you're a family, you have an HSA, you contribute, let's say you're maxing out, you're putting $7,000 per year into that account. You could either do it after you get your money from your employer and then you fill out the appropriate tax forms and you can write it off your federal income tax and for most states, your state income tax as well. So you get great savings there. However, if you just reach out to your employer and ask if you can do it through payroll, you not only get the tax break from the federal and state income, but you also get to avoid your FICA taxes, which is over seven and a half percent. So just by simply making it on a, you know, a salary reduction agreement and putting that money into the HSA um, before it ever hits your account, you get an additional seven and a half percent savings, which on $7,000 is over 500 bucks that you're saving right off the top by avoiding those FICA income tax or the FICA taxes, the unemployment and social security. So um, I, I tell clients, look, even if you are a finance nerd like me, a lot of folks don't know just that simple little step, and it's a very valuable one. It's, I think you could make the argument that you could call it a quadruple tax advantaged account if you're, uh, if you're intelligent about how you're actually funding that particular account. So for any listeners out there who are currently contributing to an HSA, fire up an email to HR, see if you can get, on the, uh, get them to make those contributions on your behalf through payroll, and you just saved yourself over 500 bucks and there's a uh, not many not much work to it and there's not many ways you can save 500 dollars that easily so that's that's my tip for you, for you and for the audience well I think that is great stuff that definitely gets it. come on come on anytime you can save 7.5% 500 bucks i think everybody likes that so well rob thank you so much for coming on where can savage nation learn more about you Sure. So uh, my website is www.mountainriverfinancial.com. Um, have a Facebook page as well, a Twitter account that I'm still, you know, getting a little more uh, familiar with. But uh, I'd say, yeah, come on over to my website, check it out. If you're in your 30s or 40s and you're looking to build wealth and find financial freedom, um, shoot me a message, drop me an email, and uh, see if there's an opportunity to work together. Perfect. Well, Savage Nation, if, if you enjoyed this as much as I did, show Rob your appreciation and share today's show with a friend who also appreciates good ideas, go to mountainriverfinancial.com, and I will list the other locations in the notes of the show as well. Thank you again, Rob. Hey, thank you, George. And until next time, keep fighting the good fight because we are all in this together. Before I go, quick announcement. I've been asked by so many people over the past couple of years about how do I start a podcast that I've developed and released a course that will teach you exactly how to do that step-by-step from figuring out the kind of show that you want to have to understanding how all the technology works behind it and then how to get great guests and uh, keep the thing moving and how to grow it. So if you're interested in that, check it out. You can go to georgegrombacher.com forward slash podcast course and you'll find it there. You can just go to the website. I'll also list that in the notes of the show. What's up, Savage Nation? Please support the show by subscribing, leave us a review, and definitely feel free to share us with somebody you think would like it. Come on!